Hey everyone, welcome to this week's conversation with Dr. Stephen Ned about the body and how to fix, protect, or maintain it using outside-the-box alternative solutions. If you're a big fan of the pharmaceutical or surgical approach, you are so in the wrong place because on this podcast, we're not going to be pushing the conventional medicine methods or way of thinking about health. If you're looking for another way to live longer and healthier, join me, Ron Ned, and my brother, Dr. Stephen Ned, for this week's body chat about ADHD drugs. Me? I'm a retired Twin Cities chiropractor currently helping people buy and sell homes in the Tampa Bay and Los Angeles areas. My brother has a thriving chiropractic practice in the Clearwater area of Tampa Bay, Florida. In this podcast, we're going to chat about all sorts of topics related to health, nutrition, exercise, just about everything having to do with the body. You're invited to listen in to our body chat, but don't forget that neither of us is giving you health advice, so don't rush off to do something without either checking with your doctor first or seeing Dr. Steve Annette as a patient at his office. Well, Steve, here we are again on episode number five, I think, as far as psychiatric drugs, and we're going to have one more next week, and then we're going to have one more the week after that. We've actually got two more coming up. That's right. So this week, we're going to talk about drugs that are used for ADD and ADHD. So why don't we start, first of all, by going over what those two abbreviations stand for? I know we had an episode that we covered that, but let's go over that again. So what are they? All right. Well, ADD stands for Attention Deficit Disorder, and ADHD is abbreviated for Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder. Now, ADD is no longer used in medical circles, so we're just going to refer to ADHD the rest of the podcast. Okay. Now, ADHD is basically a behavior disorder supposedly affecting both children and adults. And if you go back to our previous podcast covering ADD and ADHD, episode number 47, I describe in detail the two main categories of ADHD as put forth by the current edition of the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders by the American Psychiatric Association. Uh, one of the categories was composed of nine different symptoms having to do with inattention, and the other also contained nine different symptoms, but it had to do with hyperactivity and impulsivity. So these are the medical guidelines to determine if someone has ADHD and what type. Again, the bottom line with these symptoms is that in children, when six or more of the symptoms have persisted for at least six months, or in older adolescents and adults, ages 17 and older, with five or more symptoms having occurred for at least six months, then they qualify for the diagnosis of ADHD. Now, the National Institute of Mental Health admits that they don't know what causes ADHD. Uh, researchers are currently looking at interactions between genes and environmental or non-genetic factors. Plus, they also emphasize that there's no cure for ADHD, but currently available treatments may help reduce symptoms and improve functioning. That's great. Well, we don't know what causes it, and this won't take care of it. But take this because this might help reduce the symptoms somewhat. That may, that's a real vote of confidence, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> All right. So when were ADHD and ADD first diagnosed and when did they first come to prominence? All right. Well, the term ADD was first used in 1980 
when it was introduced in the American Psychiatric Association's DSM-3, or Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, third edition. The forerunner to this was hyperkinetic impulse disorder, which was introduced in 1968 in the second edition of the DSM. Uh, the first edition of the DSM, which was put out in 1952, didn't recognize ADD or ADHD. Now, the first mention of ADHD was actually way back in 1902. Uh, a British pediatrician by the name of Sir George Still described an abnormal defect of moral control in children. He found that some children affected with this could not control their behavior the way a typical child would, but they were still intelligent. Okay, we've, you know, we've established that ADD was first used as a diagnosis in 1980. Well, it was amended and called ADHD for the first time in 1987 when the DSM-4 was released and is still called ADHD in the current DSM-5 manual. Okay. So now that's very scientific, a statistical diagnostic manual. So what are the actual objective tests that they use to diagnose ADHD? Well, no surprises here if you've been listening to the previous podcasts. Just like the other drugs and conditions that we've covered, there are none. It's strictly based on symptom patterns as outlined in the DSM, which we just went over. Mm -hmm. And I'll repeat what I said in the specific podcast on ADD and ADHD, and that is a quote from the National Institutes of Health, in which they say, we do not have an independent valid test for ADHD, and there is no data to indicate that ADHD is due to a brain malfunction. So, you know, I just want to say that as a chiropractic physician, I'm required to do an objective physical exam and order lab tests, you know, including x-rays, MRIs, or blood tests when needed. This way I can objectively determine what is underlying a patient's condition. Mm -hmm. Well, in psychiatry, there are no objective tests when it comes to justifying the use of psychiatric medications, but these drugs are prescribed anyway to mask or manage symptoms. There's also no proof or validity to the chemical imbalance theory. Now, I've quoted some very prominent psychiatrists in past podcasts that confirm this. Even the World Psychiatric Association and the U.S. National Institutes of Mental Health admit that psychiatrists don't know the causes or cures for any mental disorder or what their treatments specifically do to the patient. Well, I have to disagree with one point, and that is when you said that ADHD is not due to a brain malfunction. It actually is. It's due to the brain malfunction of the doctors who sit on the board that vote for conditions to be named. They're the ones that have the brain malfunctions, not the kids that they're labeling. Now, what were the first drugs prescribed for ADD and ADHD? Well, the first drug prescribed for ADHD, even though it wasn't called ADHD back then, was Ritalin. Uh, it was first produced in 1944, but then when it was released for use to the public in 1955, it was not originally prescribed for children, but rather for adults, especially the elderly with chronic fatigue, depression, and narcolepsy, which is where someone suffers from chronic daytime sleepiness and episodes in which they fall asleep unexpectedly during the day. You know, these are also known as sleep attacks. Mm -hmm. 
So Ritalin was then used into the 1960s to attempt to counter the symptoms of barbiturate overdose. And then the first documented case of Ritalin being used to treat a young person with ADHD symptoms was in 1961. Now, one year before this, in 1960, the amphetamine drug Adderall was released, but it wasn't approved by the FDA to treat ADHD until 1996. Wow, they kept after it for 35 years to get that drug on the market. Mm -hmm. But meanwhile, Ritalin steadily became more popular for the treatment of ADHD symptoms in the 1970s and into the early 1980s. But it really took off between 1991 and 1999 as Ritalin sales in the United States increased 500%. Just one year later in 2000, a United Nations report presented by the DEA at a congressional testimony before the Committee on Education and the Workforce revealed that at that time, the United States produced and consumed as much as 85% of the world's production of Ritalin. Wow. So I guess it only happens in the United States. Yeah, of course it does. (laughs) All right. So those are the first drugs prescribed. What are the ones that are most prescribed at this time? Well, the most commonly prescribed medications for ADHD are known as psychostimulants, with the top two still being Adderall and Ritalin, and they account for about two-thirds of the medications still currently prescribed for ADHD. The next most popular drug prescribed for ADHD is Concerta, which is simply an extended-release form of Ritalin. Now, medical statistics show that psychostimulants are about 70 to 80% effective in relieving ADHD symptoms in children and about 70% effective in adults. And for those that either don't respond to the psychostimulants or have adverse effects from them, they'll usually be prescribed non-stimulant medications instead, which include Stratera and Intuniv. Also, antidepressants, especially Wellbutrin, are often prescribed off-label for ADHD symptoms, either alone or in combination with a psychostimulant. I wonder how they come up with those names. I mean, if you take a look at them, it's like they must be taking some form of drug while they're sitting down trying to come up. Let's call it Stratera. Let's call it Ritalin. Yeah, it's like nonsense words. Anyway, what are the most common side effects and the most dangerous side effects of these different drugs. All right. Well, the most common side effects of the psychostimulants, especially Ritalin and Adderall, are stomach ache, headache, irritability, decreased appetite, weight loss, insomnia, and social withdrawal. The list of the most dangerous side effects of psychostimulants is quite extensive, so we're going to spend a good chunk of time on this. Okay. So, you know, let's start with the fact that these drugs are highly addictive, and so much so that both Ritalin and Adderall have been classified by the Controlled Substances Act put forth by the DEA and FDA as Schedule II Controlled Substances, or more specifically, Class II drugs, joining cocaine, crystal meth, and the opiate pain medications morphine, Demerol, oxycodone, and hydrocodone. Yeah, not really good company to be going along with. Yeah, that's kind of a hall of shame. Mm -hmm. So to learn more about the specific side effects of Ritalin, 
plus its connection to some of the school shootings that we spoke about in our first podcast in this series on psychiatric drugs. I recommend going back and listening to episode 47 again on ADD and ADHD. And since I primarily focused on the side effects of Ritalin in that podcast and just barely touched on those associated with Adderall, I wanted to go into detail on the nasty side effects of Adderall in this episode. Good. Go ahead. All right. Well, the the package insert for Adderall can be hard to read because of highly technical terminology and tiny six-point font. Yeah, of course. But, you know, it includes FDA-mandated warnings that it can cause some pretty serious mental issues, including psychotic behavior, aggression, violent behavior, confusion, hallucinations, delusions, anxiety, paranoia, mood disturbances, and personality changes. In addition, the fine print in the package insert includes data about it potentially causing suicide and even homicide, as well as agitation, even though that's what it's supposed to be treating. Wow. Now, since Adderall is an amphetamine, I'm also going to go over some of the physical problems that have been found to occur with amphetamine use. Okay. Well, for one, these drugs have been found to cause brain damage similar to what's seen in Alzheimer's disease, stroke, and epilepsy. They can cause seizures in children who have never had seizures before or worsen seizures in people that are already diagnosed with epilepsy. They've also been found to cause heart muscle damage leading to heart failure. Sudden death, stroke, and heart attack have occurred not only in adults, but also in children taking standard doses of prescription stimulants. Hmm. Yeah, most of the reports of sudden death in children occurred in those who had no pre-existing heart abnormality. Now, long-term use can stunt growth and cause weight loss in children. And this is a big reason that these drugs need to be studied further because the fact is that amphetamines have not been adequately tested for how well they work beyond three weeks in children or beyond four weeks in adults. Uh, There's little to no information on long-term safety and effectiveness of these drugs, which is ridiculous because children are typically prescribed them for the entirety of a school year or all year round. And, you know, one other safety note is that these drugs should never be used by pregnant or nursing mothers. Babies that are born to mothers dependent on amphetamines have been shown to be at higher risk of being premature or having low birth weight. In addition, newborns often have to be treated for drug withdrawal in the intensive care unit. And since these drugs end up in breast milk, they should absolutely be avoided by nursing mothers. Now, since I just mentioned withdrawal, that's another problem with these drugs because it's been proven that children on Adderall and other similar psychostimulants can suffer addiction. And when the specific drug that is being taken is stopped, Various withdrawal symptoms will occur, which may include depression, anxiety, fatigue, paranoia, aggression, and get this, (laughs) intense cravings, including a craving for cocaine. Oh, wonderful. Yeah. Now, I'd also like to add that these stimulants have the opposite effect on children when taken in the same doses that adults take. They act as sedatives in children as opposed to stimulants in adults. Psychiatrists and medical doctors have no idea why this occurs, and this is backed up by medical references, including an article called Pay Attention, Ritalin Acts Much Like Cocaine, published in 2001 in the Journal of the American Medical Association. You know, a likely explanation is that most drugs, when taken in small amounts, act as stimulants and in larger amounts can cause sedation and toxicity. 
So a classic example is alcohol. It acts as a stimulant, creating a buzz sensation, you know, where you'll see a happy, talkative drunk. But in higher doses, it'll slow down and sedate an individual and even cause a person to black out. Right. So, you know, basically what occurs with a psychostimulant in children is that the amount given to them is pretty high relative to their body weight. So this slows them down or sedates them, whereas the same amount given to an adult causes wakefulness and an energy boost. Hmm. I mean, it can be so profound in school children that their classmates can easily identify who's taking Ritalin or Adderall since it slows down their movements, dulls their responses, and you know, can even produce a glazed-over look similar to a zombie. And this is because research has shown that psychostimulant drugs cause an imbalance in the brain chemical called dopamine. And this imbalance is what causes the zombie-like effect. Now, one of the claims that psychiatrists make to justify prescribing psychostimulants for children is that they can improve a child's academic performance by helping him or her to focus better. Well, that's a common misconception because evidence shows otherwise. Of course. Yeah. So That darn evidence. Uh. So an ADHD consensus statement from the National Institutes of Health published in 1998 stated that there is little improvement in academic achievement or social skills in children taking stimulants. Now, one more thing that I would like to add is that since these drugs have the opposite effect in adults, they've been also sold on the streets going by the names Speed, Kitty Cocaine, and poor man's cocaine. Oh, wow. Yeah. In fact, back in 2005, it was estimated that about 10% or 2.3 million of American teens abused Adderall and or Ritalin. In addition, these drugs have become notorious as gateway drugs to street drugs such as cocaine, despite the fact that medical experts claim otherwise. Wow. Pretty gross mm -hmm. overall. Now, medical doctors don't have a clue, or I should say psychiatrists, but any medical doctor that prescribes these drugs don't have a clue as to what causes the condition they're prescribing this for, or really what it does, or how it's supposed to fix the condition that they don't know what causes it to be there for. Anyway, so let's take a look at this a little different angle as what might be causing the symptoms that are labeled as ADHD? Are there any specific physical conditions or other things that have been found to cause these type of symptoms? And maybe even with studies showing that by treating them a certain way rather than using drugs that you're able to alleviate or eliminate these symptoms. Well, the answer to that is yes. And most of these I've observed in patients as well as myself. Ah, yeah, when I was younger, since uh, I was the poster child for hyperactivity when I was a kid, and I know that you can definitely confirm that one. Mm -hmm. That's true. So far and away at the top of the list is allergies and or sensitivities. So let's look at the most common ones. Um, let's start with foods. The most common ones are milk, wheat, corn, soy, eggs, chocolate, citrus, and peanuts. And the fact is, you know, you can literally be allergic or sensitive to any food. The great Doris Rapp demonstrated this way back in the 80s and even earlier with videos showing case studies of children, both boys and girls, that were unruly, hyperactive, and just insane 
after eating what you would think were harmless foods like strawberries or bread or milk. Mm -hmm. I, you know, I think you were the one that introduced me to these because you found out about them back when you were in practice. Yes, she actually came to Minneapolis sometime in the 80s when I was in practice. And I remember hearing her speak in person in this auditorium and her showing these homemade movies because, of course, the 1980s, you didn't have handy cams or smartphones. And she'd show actual videos of these young children, like this one young girl who was just playing very nicely. And then they gave her grapes, which is the thing they found out was what was causing the reaction. And she just went wild. And they figured it out through testing and did the treatment that she gives. And then the parents never had problems again. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, some of the, that behavior is just completely bizarre and it doesn't make sense that it could be just from a, a simple, even a healthy food, like a grape, you know, mm -hmm. you know, there, there's also many potential environmental allergens and sensitivities with some of the more common ones being mold, pollen, grass, dust, solvents, perfumes, formaldehyde, pesticides, and herbicides. And I would also like to mention some other miscellaneous dietary sources, which include artificial colorings and flavorings, additives, refined sugar, refined white flour, and sugar substitutes like aspartame or NutraSweet. Now, there, you know, there's other underlying health conditions that can be associated with ADHD, but it requires a little digging to search for and find these things. I call it lazy medicine when doctors don't use a nice long checklist of potential conditions to look for when trying to help an individual with ADHD and instead take the easy route out and just write a prescription to treat the symptoms. A real incompetent doctor needs to approach his patient like a detective trying to solve a mystery, just like Sherlock Holmes. Mm -hmm. So the list that I use includes the following. Yeast infections, also known as candida or candidiasis, heavy metal toxicity, low blood sugar, adrenal gland imbalances, and specific nutrient imbalances and deficiencies, including vitamins, minerals, essential fatty acids, hormones, and probiotics. You know, I think we did a podcast on every single one of those things I just mentioned. <laughs> I know. Uh, other miscellaneous potential causes include boredom, watching too much TV, bullying, a poor living environment, poor teaching, and study difficulties. You know, our, our nation's high illiteracy rate stems directly from the fact that most of us are never actually taught how to study correctly, which sets up many of us with learning difficulties. A simple thing such as reading over a word which you don't completely understand or use in the wrong context can actually result in many of the symptoms associated with ADHD. So I'd like to take a second and talk about Applied Scholastics, which is a nonprofit educational organization based in Missouri and was formed in 1972 by a group of American educators with the purpose of creating a world free of illiteracy where educational standards are raised and effective teaching is the norm. Okay. Yeah. And, you know, their approach involves the broad application of the learning tools known as study technology, which were researched and developed by American author and educator L. Ron Hubbard. One of the main things taught in study technology is the three barriers to study, with the misunderstood word being the most important of the three, not only because of all the physical and mental problems it can cause, but also the fact that it establishes 
aptitude and lack of aptitude, which is an individual's ability to learn or understand things quickly. And it can cause an individual to completely give up on a subject and drop out from a course or a class. So I took a course on a break during my senior year in college, which taught me the basics of study technology. And then I went back to school and became a born-again student. By this time, you know, most of my classmates were pretty burned out and just wanted to finish up as fast as possible. But I became an enthusiastic sponge for information. And what was really impressive was the fact that I was, you know, I was always a good student. I always got good grades with a grade point average around 3.3 in both high school and college. Mm-hmm. But when I implemented the study technology that I learned, my GPA shot up to 3.8 and above. But even more remarkable than that was the fact that I was able to fully understand and implement what I was learning instead of just being good at memorizing and scoring well on tests. I actually could read and study something once or at most twice and not only remember it, but also own it because I understood it. Before this, I never thought of myself as smart or intelligent, but because I became able to fully understand everything that I was studying, I became more competent and confident, which has been very significant in shaping my successful career as a doctor. Yeah, and the chiropractic school, for those people who haven't experienced anything like it, is incredibly intense. You, I remember my first trimester there, we had like 32 and a half hours, credit hours. And most people, if they don't have kids that are in college or haven't been to college in a long time, I think typical is maybe 13, 14, or 15 credit hours in a term. We were doing 32 and a half. And it was anatomy and physiology and microbiology and very intense subjects at that very beginning. So if you weren't able to keep up with it, you're flattened. So that definitely comes in handy to be able to learn and understand and be able to use what you're getting taught as you're going along rather than trying to figure it out later on. And especially in something like a healthcare profession, you want to know the information and want to be able to pull it back up and you want to be able to utilize it and not just get good grades on tests and then not be able to remember any of it. I agree. And, you know, we had one trimester, number five, which we nicknamed the trimester from hell, because we had 14 classes and 36 credit hours. We had 14 finals in four days. It was, it was insane. Yes, I agree. Now, one more thing about Applied Scholastics is, is you know, they've spread uh, globally across 74 nations of the world with over 100,000 trained educators and 32 million students benefiting from study technology in, you know, both public and private K through 12 schools as well as community-based learning programs, state and local government education agencies, uh, professional training, and tutoring centers. And statistically, it routinely raises reading and comprehension levels 25 to 35%. And, you know, right here in Clearwater, there's three private schools, uh, Clearwater Academy, Delphi Academy of Florida, and Washburn Academy that are affiliated with Applied Scholastics. Plus, there's the Community Learning Center, which offers literacy and tutoring programs. Exactly. And years ago, I worked with the tutoring program in Hollywood that basically helped underprivileged children, and in some cases, adults. Some cases, not so underprivileged either. But a lot of young children from poorer families came in, and they had free tutoring. And it was able to help get them to the point where they were able to read at the grade level that they were at when they were falling behind other kids. 
And that's where a lot of the problems come from for children that get into trouble or get thrown in jail is being unable to learn. They're not able to function in society. They're not able to get a job. They're not able to do what the rest of the adults around them are able to do. And so they turn to other things, which isn't good for them. So all of that's a very good point. And thank you. Mm-hmm. Now, before we end, is there anything else you'd like to say? And I've done this already. I've already done this during this podcast, but I want to encourage everyone to go back and listen to our earlier podcast dedicated to ADD and ADHD, which was, again, episode 47, since it not only goes into more detail on some of the things that we covered in this podcast, but it also contains additional bits of information that are very interesting and really helpful. Excellent. Thank you, Steve. Next week, we're going to go into a topic that may not be the most comfortable for people to listen to, but it's something that people need to know about and understand because it could affect them or somebody in their family at some point in the future. And it's best to be prepared for something like that rather than have it thrown upon you and then not know what to do because you don't have information about it. So one thing that we're going to be talking about isn't done anymore, and that is lobotomies. The other thing is being done, although it shouldn't be, and that's called ECT, electroconvulsive therapy, previously known as electroshock therapy. So we're going to be going about that topic next week as delicately as we can without tiptoeing around what needs to be told. So you ready for that one, Steve? I will be. Very good. We'll see everybody next week. Thanks for joining us this week on the Body Chat Podcast. We both really appreciate your time and your attention. We want to provide you with interesting and informative episodes each week, and if you have a topic you'd like us to cover or any questions you'd like us to answer, send an email to us at info at bodychatpodcast.com. That's info at bodychatpodcast.com. To make sure you don't miss any of our upcoming episodes, subscribe to the Body Chat Podcast now on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or Spotify. See you next week.